0: this morning, Revelation 14, and this is a tough chapter. We had, in a sense, the the easy version uh, verses last week with the first uh, first five verses, a really uplifting passage, and this week it's tough. This week is really grisly kind of stuff. Uh, So beginning in verse 6, we'll read through to the rest of the end of the chapter. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, for the, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, which is about 300 kilometers. So... I remember a few years ago walking down Queen Street must have been a Friday or a Saturday night and somebody stepped out of the shadows into my path and handed me a little tract or a little brochure and I took it kind of gave them a a half smile as you do and uh, politely took it and walked on and and a little while later I opened up this brochure and looked at it and it was a Christian tract was a Christian brochure and as I read it the vast vast majority of the content of this brochure was all about judgment it was as if the author of this brochure had cobbled together every verse in the entire Bible that talks about judgment and wrath and punishment and suffering and just collated them all in one succinct little brochure. And it was all about how terrible the suffering would be and how painful and awful it would be if you didn't know Jesus and just how hot the fires of hell would be and how bad the judgment would be. And then right at the end, in the bottom right corner, there was a tiny little bit about what you could do if you wanted to avoid the judgment which has become a follower of Jesus. It was almost like that was an afterthought to the whole thing. The whole emphasis and the point of it was judgment. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, what is the motivation for that? What is going on that that, that motivates people to reach out to people that way? Um, Is it that we're trying to scare people into the kingdom and use these fear-based tactics in evangelism? Uh, Do they really feel like that's the most effective, practical way of making converts? Um, or do they feel like that is genuinely the most important thing we've got to say as Christians? That the message of judgment really is the, the most important message that we've got for the world? I don't know whether you've had an experience like that. It kind of makes you cringe, doesn't it, when you read those sorts of things. But then on the other end of the spectrum, at the other extreme, there's a group of Christians that want to downplay the theme of judgment and wrath and hell so much that it's basically excluded from the story, that the theme of judgment is so unpalatable in our culture, which it is, and so politically incorrect, which it is, that um, anything to do with judgment, wrath, hell, destruction uh, that could be attributed to God is just marginalized, it's taken out, it's edited out, or it's glossed over. Any reference to that in the Bible is just kind of shoved off into into a little corner. But sooner or later, that group of people bump up against Revelation 14, And if we're committed to the idea that the whole Bible is the Word of God, and if we believe that all of it and not just our favorite bits of it are the revealed Scripture, the Holy Word of God breathed out by the Spirit, then we have to take chapters like this seriously, don't we? We have to take these chapters as seriously as all the great chapters about all the stuff that we love. Because this is the Bible and this is God's Word, and so we need to treat it with seriousness and we need to look at what's actually being said here. The greatest difficulty I think that you have when you come to this chapter in Revelation, if you've followed the storyline so far, is that it seems to be so at odds with this picture of Jesus as the slain lamb. You know, we've talked a lot about Revelation centering around the image of lamb power around the image of Jesus as the slaughtered lamb, the one whose nature is self-giving love. Jesus summons all of his power in order to give all of himself away and lay down his life for the other, lay down his life in this radical self-sacrifice. But now we get to Revelation 14, and it's as if all of that's gone out the window. It's as if all the love and all the niceness and all the kindness of God has just gone out the window, and it's as if we're back to some form of, of Rome power, some form of brutality of bullying, of coercion, violence, force, manipulation. These sound like the themes of Revelation 14. How do you reconcile the idea of God as the loving lamb who lays down his life with this idea of God who consigns people to be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of God and the lamb? Those are difficult images to hold together. So I think the first thing that needs to be said here. When we come to this chapter, is that even in Revelation 14, Jesus is still the lamb. And that's right here. You notice that in the text. In fact, the verse that's perhaps the most grisly verse in the whole chapter, the one about people being tormented with burning sulfur in verse 10, is the very same verse in which Jesus is described as the lamb. They're tormented in the presence of the lamb. And that tells us even here, even as Jesus is fulfilling his role as a judge, he never stops being the lamb. He never stops being the lamb of God. His nature never changes. He is still defined by this radical self-giving love. And if Jesus is defined by self-giving love, then God the Father is still defined by self-giving love. And this is the starting point for exploring the nature of God's judgment. That God in his essential nature, in his essence, at the heart of his character, is unending love. That's who he is. God is love. That's his essential being. That's his core nature. That's the attribute that is primary for God. It's the attribute that defines all the other attributes. It's the central and the centering attribute of God that he is absolute love and is absolutely loving Towards all that he has made if you could peel back all the layers of God's being and essence and character as if that was possible You would get to the core the heart of love. God is love. That's who he is past present future And that love leads him to relentlessly pursue relationship with us his human creatures whom he has fashioned in his image But the question of revelation 14 is what happens when that love is rejected What happens when God's human creatures, whom he desperately loves, spurn and shun this incredible love that God has for them and this offer of life and well-being that God extends to them? What happens when we reject that love? And the answer that we, we have back here is that when that happens, God's love is expressed as wrath. Now, notice I didn't say God's love turns into wrath. But God's love is expressed as wrath. I know that wrath, the word wrath, carries all kinds of images, doesn't it? When you think about that word, wrath, in relation to God, we think of a bullying kind of, we think of a tyrannical God. We think of this manipulative, capricious kind of deity who just delights somehow in punishing people. And consigning people to eternal suffering who takes some twisted pleasure in it. That's kind of the images that wrath has accumulated in our culture. But that is not a biblical vision of the wrath of God. God's wrath and God's love are not two different things. God is love and wrath is an expression of his love. It is a form of his love. Now let me try and illustrate that with, um, with, with this analogy. Imagine that you're married, and for those of you who are married, this, that's easy. Imagine you're married, and your husband or wife, you find out they're having an affair. They've run off after someone else, they've attached themselves to someone else, they've abandoned you, and they've betrayed your love. They've left you. Now, how do you respond to that? If you're a committed and devoted spouse, and you desperately love your husband or wife, how do you respond to that betrayal? You're hurt, you're wounded, you're devastated, you're heartbroken. And you're angry, aren't you? You're angry. Of course you are. You're angry with them and you're angry with whoever they've run off with. You're angry. But your anger against them is not this kind of cruel anger. It's not a punitive, punishing anger. It's an anger that is rooted and established in your love for your spouse. Isn't it? If you didn't love them, would you be angry? You wouldn't care. You're angry because you love them. And that anger is a form of your love for them. Your anger is what happens when that love is betrayed. It's exactly the same with God. God loves us. He desires relationship with us. He wants to reconcile us to himself. When we shove that in his face, God's love is expressed as wrath. Wrath is anger. God is angry. Of course he is. When we desecrate the image of God within ourselves, when we run off after other gods and other people and our own egos, of course God's angered. But it's not this cruel, punishing, bullying kind of anger. It's an anger that comes out of his love. It's an anger that emerges from the depth of his love for you and I. If God didn't love you desperately, he wouldn't care what you do with your life. He wouldn't care what a mess you make of it, and he wouldn't care what you do with his offer of salvation. He cares, and he is angered simply because he loves you so much. That's why in the Bible, God's referred to as being jealous, a jealous God. It doesn't mean he has this kind of petty jealousy for something that's not his. God has a protective jealousy, the same kind of jealousy that you have over your husband or wife or a friend that's very close to you, a protective jealousy that wants to guard what is yours, and that is this relationship, a protective jealousy for the relationship and for the well-being of that person. It's a loving jealousy that wants to guard the love that is there. That's the kind of jealousy God has, and God's anger that's expressed against those who reject his love is only anger because of his love, not in spite of his love. It's because of his love. So wrath is, in fact, a form of God's love. It's an expression of God's love in action. It's the anger of wounded love, not the anger of a bullying, tyrannical deity. And come back to the marriage analogy for a moment. Uh, If you you were betrayed by a husband or wife, if you were a devoted and committed spouse, you'd pursue them. You'd go after them. You would try and reestablish this connection. You'd hold your arms open for that reconciliation as long as you possibly could. But if they insisted on completely and permanently rejecting you, running off with the other person, and absolutely refusing reconciliation, then you would have no option eventually but to divorce them. Whether you initiate it or they initiate it, there's going to be a divorce eventually. And this is how God's wrath works. God will do whatever he can during your life to pursue you, to draw you back into connection and relationship with him. He will open his arms wide. He will always take you back. But if you persist in rejecting and refusing his love through your life, and your life ends and you're still in that that state and you've, you've rejected him, then God eternalizes what you've chosen. God makes permanent what you have chosen in this life, which is separation from him, which is alienation. You've already chosen it. You've already chosen to be separate from him. You've already chosen to be isolated from his love. God hands you over to what you've already asked for, which is permanent separation. There is a great divorce, as C.S. Lewis described it, a great divorce at the end between you and God if you choose to reject him during this life. But that is no less than God simply giving you what you've already asked for and making permanent that great separation. And that, I think, is what these images in Revelation 14 really describe. Is the way that God ultimately deals with those who have rejected His love. Still out of love for them, He hands them over to what they've already chosen in this life, which is isolation and alienation from Him. It's just that we have no idea how, in the end, how devastating that will actually be. So the two images that you have in this passage of God's wrath and what it actually looks like are found in verse 10 and verse 20. The first of them is this image of people being tormented with burning sulfur, suffering, suffering in the presence of the Lamb. And, And by the way, I don't think that necessarily means that people in hell suffer in the presence of Jesus as if Jesus is in hell with them. Now, I think it means that Jesus presides over that judgment, that he has authority over that judgment, not that he's right there. And the other verse is in verse twenty. This image of the wine press, and this is particularly gruesome. These people were trampled in the wine press outside the city, in the great winepress of God's wrath, and blood flowed out of the winepress as high as horses' bridles. So there's an image of destruction, of crushing, of death. Now, I would suggest that these images in Revelation 14 are not intended to be taken in a strictly literal fashion. You might disagree with that, but I've been on at this for a long time now in Revelation. And you have to appreciate that with this book, we are dealing with a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature responds really, really badly to trying to be pushed in a literal direction. It's not a genre that's common or familiar to us today, but it was in the ancient world and there's numerous examples of it. And it is not a genre of writing that is supposed to be taken literally. I would suggest to you that if you want to take these images of judgment literally in Revelation 14, you also have to be prepared to take the sea monster literally in Revelation 13. And then you also need to be prepared to take the dragon literally in in chapter 12. And hardly anybody does that. But we want to pick and choose what we take literally and what we don't. This book is not intended to be taken literally. It is intended to be taken symbolically. And that is not to lessen the force of these images. That is not to weaken anything about the judgment of God. In fact, arguably, it's to intensify it because metaphors are used to describe what we can't possibly have language to describe. But it's not. We don't have to believe that people will literally, there will literally be sulfur or there will literally be a lake of literal fire, or that there will literally be a wine press, and people will literally be treated like grapes. That's not the point. These images don't fit that well together anyway in terms of two pictures that, that coincide with one another. They are symbols of the severity and the intensity of the judgment of God. They are images of what happens when God withdraws his presence from people, which is in the end what God will do. If you continue to, to reject his love for the duration of your life, that in the end, these are images of what happens with God as he withdraws the fullness of his presence. And that's not just God going off some other place and leaving you over here on your own. Because when God withdraws his presence from people, he withdraws with it every blessing, every life-sustaining breath, everything that is good, everything that goes along with the presence and the life and the goodness of God is just sucked out, leaving people in an absolute vacuum of nothingness, desolation, emptiness, and most importantly, isolation from the God who loves them. That's what these images are trying to describe, the removal of God's presence. Because even in this life in the present, if you don't choose to follow Jesus, God still lets you live and breathe, doesn't he? God still lets you suck oxygen in. He still lets you enjoy a beautiful earth and make choices and live as if nothing matters. That's what we call common grace. It's given to believers and unbelievers. That God just allows us the luxury of life, whatever we choose. But if you reject God's love, one day even common grace will be removed. And that is every even the common blessings of this life, just the sustaining, life-giving opportunities that we have, even that is withdrawn and we end up in this place of emptiness and isolation, which we experience as torment, suffering, and destruction. It's not nice to think about, is it? But again, we need to emphasize that this judgment is completely self-imposed. Completely. C.S. Lewis put this brilliantly in his book, The Great Divorce. It's a good read if you want to pick up more on this. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Isn't that a great picture? It's It's not a comfortable picture, but it's a very accurate one, I think, that there are only two types of people. Everyone in this room falls into one of these categories. Either in our lives, we say to God, Thy will be done. And we bow the knee and we orientate our life around Jesus Christ. Or at the end of our lives, God says to us, well, your will be done then. You've chosen separation. You've rejected my love. I will eternalize that decision, that commitment, and you will be divorced from me, from my presence, and therefore from everything that is good and every possible blessing. That's the harsh reality of God's judgment but it is self-imposed and it is self-fulfilling. Now, I know that this is not good news. I know that this is not really your favorite rainy day sermon. But um, the good news is that, that there is an amazing ray of light in this passage, even though it's a very dark section of Revelation. There's an incredible ray of light here. Just look down at verse, between verse 14 and verse 20. Notice that John here describes two different harvests two different images of a harvest verse 14 to 16 is the image of a grain harvest and then verse 17 to 20 is the image of a grape harvest, two different harvests now commentators disagree on this and have different opinions as they do with most things in Revelation but I tend to think that these harvests represent two different realities or you could say two different destinations for people at the end of their lives The final harvest in verse 17 to 20 is the one we've been talking about. The destination of those people who reject God's love and who reject Jesus. And we don't need to say much more about that. But this harvest in the middle, the grain harvest, verse 14 to 16, it's different. It sounds different. It feels different. Read them side by side sometimes. This harvest doesn't have the negative imagery attached to it. It doesn't have the images of judgment. It's more upbeat. It's more uplifting. And this harvest, I think, is a description of the destination and the reality for people who do follow Jesus. This harvest of of the grain harvest, one like a son of man comes, that's a classic description of Jesus. He comes with a sickle in his hand and he runs it across the earth and he harvests the earth. I think this is an image of Jesus gathering together all those who are his, all those who do love him, all those who have embraced his offer of new life and salvation, all those who belong to him. This is an image of blessing. And it's not because of anything good in us. It's not because those people are somehow more moral or they go to church more or they've been baptized or whatever. It is simply because they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only difference between the people in the grain harvest and the grape harvest, the people that go on to blessing and the people that go on to destruction. And the only reason that people are able to be spared the judgment of God and welcomed into the new creation is not because of what we've done. It's because of what Christ has done. And it's because Jesus took all of this judgment on himself. Jesus took these gruesome images of judgment upon himself. In fact, if you look carefully in verse 20, I would suggest that you can see there not just an image of the judgment and punishment of unbelievers, but you can also see there an image of the suffering of Jesus. Jesus was the one who was crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. Before this is an image of what's going to happen to some people one day at the end of history, this is an image of what happened to Jesus. Jesus was crushed in the great winepress of the wrath of God on Calvary. That's what the cross was. Isaiah 53 describes it. He was crushed for our transgressions. It was the Father's will, get your head around that, it was the Father's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Jesus, in a sense, was thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God and trampled and crushed outside the city. And then his blood flowed. And even though that flowing of blood as high as the horse's bridles is an awful, gruesome image of judgment, it's also, if we see it as being a double image It's also an image of salvation. It's also an image of the blood of Jesus flowing from Calvary, covering the earth and being the blood that covers us and provides a way out from the judgment of God and a way into the life of God. Jesus has experienced this judgment, this alienation, this separation, this absolute desolation from the presence of God. He's experienced it so that you and I would not have to, so that we can have something better, so that we can experience life with God, that starts now and so that we can one day be ushered into the new creation, this renewed earth where we will be fully in the presence of God and fully reconciled to God and others. That's the promise. And it shows us that God's judgment is not the final scene in the story. God's judgment is not the end goal. New creation is the end goal. Always keep that in mind. I think this is where Christians get off track. We want to make judgment the main point. Judgment is never the main point. It's a means to an end. It is the means to an end. It's not the end itself. The goal, the telos of creation and history is new creation and reconciled humanity with God and one another. To get there requires judgment. To get there requires God to eradicate anything that opposes his reign and rule. Anything that is still contaminated by the forces of evil, God must exclude. This is why the image at the, at the end of Revelation is nothing impure can enter the city. Nothing impure can come through the gates of the new city, the new Jerusalem. God, by necessity, if he is to preserve and to protect the purity and the holiness of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, he must expel from the new creation anything that is opposed to his reign, anything that resists his rule, and that would include men and women who reject his offer of love. But that's not the goal. New creation is the goal. Judgment is not the end, it is not ultimate, it is penultimate. That is, it's the second to last act, not the final act. The final act is blessing. The final act is new creation for all of those who are aligned to the Lamb and who follow Jesus. So let me just say one final thing then about this passage as we wrap up here. Notice that with Revelation 14, as with the rest of Revelation, this passage is written... To Christians. John's not writing a gospel tract. He's not writing an outreach pamphlet. He's not preaching an evangelistic sermon. This is written to Christians. And that, I think, should tell us a couple of things. One, this is not your evangelism method. This is not for you to go out and read these passages from Revelation 14 to non Christians and use this as a script for the next tract that you want to write. That's not how it works. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not trying to skirt around the issue of God's judgment. We need to be upfront with that. It's part of the biblical story. That's just the reality. But the purpose of these images is not to do fear-based evangelism. That's just never our calling. To use scare tactics to try and scare people into the kingdom of God is not appropriate and it is not biblical. Paul says in Romans, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And that needs to be our dominant drive. As we talk to other people about Jesus, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Yes, there are consequences for rejecting his love, and we, and we don't want to hide those. But it is the kindness, the mercy of God that's been revealed on the cross. Jesus has taken the judgment of God upon himself, so you don't have to. There's a new life that you can embrace. There's a new eternity that you can step into. This, the love of God is what drives the story forward in the Bible. And it's the love of God that should drive our witness should drive our outreach towards those who don't know Jesus. And secondly, we need to ask ourselves, as those of us who are Christians, what response then should this passage invoke in us? Because John's writing it to Christians for a reason, so how would we respond to these images? What are they supposed to do to us? Not to scare us, not to frighten us. What sort of response should we have? And I think the answer comes in verse uh, verse 7, from the lips of this angel who says, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Our main response to these disturbing images of judgment, I think, should be to fear God. And when we talk about the fear of God, we're not talking about being frightened, we're not talking about being scared, we're not talking about cowering before God like a child in front of a dangerous animal. That's not biblically the fear of God. The fear of God is best understood as a deep reverence for God, an awe at the weight of his person and his presence. The fear of God is to tremble, to tremble with a sober appreciation of the immensity of God's being, that he is the God who holds life and death in his hands. He is the God who will one day sentence some to eternal life and some to eternal destruction. He is the God who holds the keys to death and Hades. He has that power and he has that authority. But our fear of God is, is also rooted in the deep conviction that God is loving and God is good and God summons all of his great power and offers his life that we might experience life with him. It reminds me of that great scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where uh, Susan is talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan, Aslan the Lion, who is a a Jesus allegory in in the movie, in the book. And Susan says uh, to Mr. Beaver, is he quite safe? Talking about Aslan. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. And that's the God whom we serve, isn't it? He's not safe. Far from it. But he is good. Very good. And that should lead us to have a deep fear at the awesomeness and the power of God and the judgment of God but also to rest in his loving arms of grace. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult images. And this is a difficult passage. These are difficult topics. Father, I just pray right now for anybody here who doesn't know you. And I just pray, Lord, that what I've shared this morning and these words from your scripture would settle upon them in the right way, not to scare them, not to frighten them. But Lord, I pray they would be convicted by the awesomeness of your presence and the amazing thing that you have done for us through the cross and through the resurrection to bring us into new life. And I pray, God, that these images of judgment would just settle on us as sober reminders of just how powerful you are, that we wouldn't be flippant with you, that we wouldn't be too casual with you, That we wouldn't be disrespectful. But that we would feel the weight of your presence. But as we do that, we feel the weight of your immense love. Thank you that we're just enveloped in your goodness. Thank you that you are not safe, but you are very, very good. And we bless you for that this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.